Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. We are returning to the book of Genesis after being away for a few weeks. And we are closing in at the end. I have to be honest, this is not... this. This was not one of my favorite passages uh, in Genesis. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll, let me rephrase that. This was one of my least favorite passages in Genesis uh, before I, I studied it and was really meditating on it. I have, uh, there are some things I, I knew about it and I was prepared for, but there was much more in here than I had prepared for. And I had hoped to take it all in one sermon. I'm going to divide it into two. Um, I was looking at another pastor uh, Friday afternoon. I was looking to, you know, after I had made the decision to, to divide it into two so that I didn't take us, you know, two hours into a sermon. Um, I looked at how another pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, he preached eight sermons on this chapter, um, which is absolutely easy. I can see how and why he would do that. But it's nice when we can still get the sense of the whole chapter. So we're going to keep the chapter or at least... We'll look at the first half, and then we'll look at the next half next week. But Genesis 49 is such a, a beautiful chapter, wonderful chapter. And it is a chapter that deals with two kinds of conflict. There is a well-known, famous actress, Sybil Thorndike, who was questioned at the end of her life after her husband had passed away. She'd been married for many, many years to her husband, and they had been well known to have a a very tumultuous marriage. Wasn't easy being married to one another. And she was asked after her husband had passed away, she was asked, uh, did you ever consider divorcing him? Things were really rough for you guys. You had some several periods, many periods where things were very difficult. Did you ever consider divorce? And her response is humorous. She says, divorce, never. Murder, often. (laughs) There are lots of, you know, marriage is a, if you, there's a reason why romance movies stop when the couple finally gets together. Because marriage brings conflict, not because there's anything wrong with marriage, but because there's, there's something wrong with us. And marriage brings that out. But there are all sorts of conflict, conflict in the world. Genesis 49 highlights two of those conflicts. The conflict in the first half we're going to look at today, the conflict that we face internally, And then the conflict we'll look at next week in the second half, the the, the focus shifts from being internal conflict, internal disaster dangers, to external dangers, external conflict. And what we have here in Genesis 49 is Jacob's final blessings on his 12 sons. That is, he's had sons by four different women, his first wife, Leah, and and they, they are ordered mostly by birth order, but there are some exceptions, and we're going to get into that, why those exceptions exist. Those are important. But Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah, his two concubines, and then followed by Rachel. And if he was going to devote 
He's got 12 sons. If he was going to devote equal time to each of his sons, they would each receive, I did the math, about 8% of the total attention, but he doesn't. Two of the sons in particular, he deals with far more than he deals with the others. Two of the sons receive 40% of the intention, of the attention, almost divided equally, 20% each, Judah and Joseph. And Judah is an example of this the dangers and how to deal with them, the dangers internally that we are going to look at today. And and Joseph becomes an example of how to respond to external dangers, which we'll look at next week. But there are a number of things that we can see about this chapter. And before we do so, it would be wise for us to, to pray, ask the Lord for his blessing, and then we will read the passage together. Uh, just the first 15 verses So join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us mercy to hear today and to respond in faith. We read in Psalm 119, 25, that our souls cling to dust, but it is your word that revives. We do pray, O Lord, that you would revive us according to your word, by your word. That you would awaken, that you would sustain, that you would stoke the dying fires of our heart. That we would not be content with mere religion, with mere duty. We would not just go through the motions, but, O God, that we would put our hope in you. And that our heart would be awakened to your grace and your glory seen in Christ. This we pray in his name, our Savior Jesus. Amen. And just follow along as I begin in verse 1. And we read through the first 15 verses. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And this is one of the things, we don't have time to get into it throughout the sermon, but throughout the passage, he uh, refers to his sons as the sons of Jacob or Israel. Uh, He refers to himself as Israel or Jacob throughout. It's almost, you can get a sense, here is a fallen man who is in one sense, trying to follow the Lord, but still broken by sin, still marred by his sin, and yet that is also going to be true of his sons as well. There is a desire to follow God, but there is still sin present that needs to be fought. And so gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency or the, the pre, you have preeminence in dignity and, the, and preeminence in power. Yet you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. 
For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. In their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. This is... The word of the Lord. This is, we can notice several things right off the, off the bat. There's a, some general thoughts about this blessing. This is, and then we might say it is an important blessing. We see the importance in, in a number of different ways. In Genesis 47, Jake blesses uh, Pharaoh. And he offers to him a, a short blessing. In Genesis 48, Jacob blesses uh, the two sons of Joseph giving them great inheritance, giving them the, the, the great blessing. And now in Genesis 49, it's all climaxing here. Now he blesses all of his sons. And here in Genesis 49, we actually have the, what is not only the longest, but the most clear display of poetry in the scripture. So far, it is the the first. There have been some, perhaps, some poetic lines used earlier in the book of Genesis, but this is clear Hebrew poetry. It is the first example of it, and as such, it is very carefully crafted. This is not the man coming in and Jacob just speaking off the cuff. This is him. He has put time and effort. He has crafted this blessing. This is incredibly important. More than that, it is a a public blessing. You think of how Jacob himself was blessed and the problems that ensued with the way his dad tried to bless, well, Esau. He tried to do it in private. And the upshot, the result was that Jacob, worming his way in, deceived his father. Jacob here makes this blessing public. He brings them all in. This is meant to be recorded. This is meant for them all to be aware of. And he is giving these blessings in the hearing of all. This is not him blessing one, then him blessing another, then him blessing another. He does it all. It is public. And it is prophetic. We see this. In the very first verse, Jacob called his sons and said, 
Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together that I may, should, that I may tell you what's going to happen to you in the last days. This, this is the same kind of terminology we find here is similar to what we find in, in several other Old Testament prophecies. This is a, a prophetic word. This is God speaking through Jacob to the sons of Jacob. It is an important blessing. It is a public blessing. And it is a prof, prophetic blessing. We can see some specific observations from these blessings. The first is this. That your advantages in life guarantee you nothing. Your advantages, your skills, your abilities, all of that means nothing. It secures nothing for you. Walk with me. We see the very first son that's mentioned in verse 3. Reuben, he becomes a story of sexual immorality. He is the firstborn. He is the one who ought to, in the scheme of things, in the family, he ought to have the greatest blessing. He is the, he is the one who ought to receive the preeminence. But as we read, he, he committed immorality. Jacob says that he went up to, you went up to your father's bed. That's pointing us back to that time when Reuben in what we think may have been a, a play for power within the family, slept with his stepmom, one of Bilhah's, I'm sorry, one of Jacob's concubines. It was an attempt on his part to gain prestige. And because of that act, he loses that preeminence. Because be, despite the fact that he had everything going for him, he was the firstborn son. Massive advantage. He loses it all. And he's described as unstable as water. This is the underlying condition. That is, he is an undisciplined man. He is turbulent, lacking any self-control, driven by his passions, driven following his heart. What led to Reuben's immorality was a pattern of being undisciplined and unstable in other areas of his life. And therefore, he will not have preeminence. Simeon and Levi, if Reuben isn't going to have preeminence, you would expect that that preeminence would pass on to the next eldest sons. That was how it worked. That was tradition. And yet Simeon and Levi, they themselves are excoriated. They, if, if Reuben's is a story of immorality, theirs is a story of anger and violence. Remember that they slaughtered the people of Shechem. And three times, he highlights three times their, their, their wrath, their anger. And three more times, he speaks of their violence, their cruelty. And as a result, they are, we are told, divided in Jacob, scattered in Israel. Not only do they miss out on taking Reuben's place of preeminence within the family and receiving the, the inheritance, the blessing of the firstborn, leadership within the family, and all that that would entail, 
we are told that they are scattered. They, they lose their identity as a tribe. Levi, we know, he is dispersed amongst the tribe. He is given 48 cities, not in the land of Canaan when they eventually take it over, that promised land. They are not given a, a tribal portion or a, a region of land. They are given 48 cities throughout the land of Israel that will be theirs and they will stay there. They are scattered. Simeon, while he is initially given a plot of land, eventually he himself dissolves, the tribe dissolves and becomes a part of Judah. Loses all distinction. No longer lives, no longer works really in existence. And then we see these two tribes going down to Zebulun and Issachar. Issachar himself is a a story of laziness. Zebulun and Issachar, these are the first example we have in this passage of two sons being flipped. Zebulun is the sixth son, yet he is listed ahead of his elder brother, Issachar. That is massively important. Kids, if your family, if your parents, when they were calling out, calling you out, if they consistently mixed up the order, that would tell you something maybe about your importance. If you're the second born son and you're always listed as the last born child, that would tell you something about yourself. Here, Issachar is listed last. In fact, this listing of being after Zebulun is consistent now with how he is listed throughout the Old Testament. Why is that the case? Well, we, we see in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by, this, by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon, which is interesting because Zebulun's region that he is given, that he is inherited within the promised land, doesn't have any coastal properties on it. Yet, where he is at in northern Israel is, it connects with the coastal regions and it becomes a a major hub of industry and commerce. And here we are told Zebulun, he will grow wealthy. He will be prosperous. Issachar, on the other hand, he starts out being praised. Issachar is a strong donkey. Now, if you call someone a strong donkey today, that's probably not a compliment. You know, know, when you're talking to children, you can talk to them and say, man, you're getting so big. But at some point, when you transition to adulthood, nobody wants to be told they are getting so big anymore. That just, it, it doesn't have the same meaning. What he is being, what he is being described as, a strong donkey. A donkey was a, a, an animal for work, okay? It, it labored. If, if he was being described today, he might be described not as a vehicle, you know, not a sedan, not a, an, a mini car, not an electric car. He is a truck. Maybe, maybe a diesel truck, maybe, maybe one with a, a hitch on the back and a winch on the front. It, it, this is a truck to do work with. This is a truck that like, it pulls in, everybody hears it. This is a work vehicle, all right? Arr, yes, that's a truck. 
That's what Issachar is being described as. He is a strong donkey. He is a, he is a work truck. But he is a strong donkey. But where is he? Is he carrying the burdens? No. He's lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed. You see what's happening? He's a work truck and he's parked in the garage all the time. He's the, he's the, the, the beast of burden and he dares not carry that burden. He's lazy. He's weak-willed. He lacks drive. And as a result, because he doesn't want to do the work, he ends up working for others as a slave. And this points forward to the way Issachar, the, the tribe of Issachar ends up as being that, that tribe that does itself become oppressed and enslaved by others. Despite his strength, despite his ability to do hard work, he doesn't. He has all this potential. All of these sons have potential. All of them have, have things going for them. You've got preeminence by, by Reuben. And he spoils it. Simeon and Levi, they've got, they are aggressive. And yet they, they go off on their own violently and in anger. And Issachar, who is strong as a tribe, he's just lazy. He just lacks any will to do what's right, to do what he ought. Each of these tribes shows us something. And it tells us, as we saw before, your, your abilities, your privileges, your advantages in life, they don't guarantee us anything. Kids, what you have now doesn't guarantee you a successful future. Think about what our world prizes. Jacob's world, they prized birth order. Strength, aggression. Our world prizes skills, abilities, looks, education. All these advantages and more. We are, we are told that if we just look deep within ourselves, we can find out who we really are and we can live out who we are. And we can know who we are by our abilities. We can define our lives and and shape our lives through what we have been given, through the advantages that we have, whatever privileges may be ours. But this text demands us to see that our choices matter more than our privileges, more than our abilities, more than our advantages. Our choices. As the great Albus Dumbledore once said, it is our choices that show us what we truly are far more than our abilities. And this leads us to our second application. The effects of our sin are unforeseen and lasting. And when Reuben, and Simeon, and Levi, Issachar, they, in the moment, it didn't seem like there was any response. And yet Reuben loses 
his rights and privileges and honor that should have been his. And it's not just Reuben, it's his tribe after him. It's his descendants after him. The the consequences of his sin and the consequences of our sin, they do not stay with us. They are generational. Reuben loses his rights and privileges and honor. And you know, no prophet, no priest, no king, no judge, no one comes from Reuben. Simeon and Levi are scattered and Simeon is swallowed up. Issachar passes out of influence, becomes an enslaved tribe. Sin is generational. The consequences are long-lasting. We see this in our own own lives, in our own world. Families begin to share the same qualities and quirks, failures and strengths. And the terrible decisions of parents and grandparents can have generational consequences. Immorality, anger, laziness. These things, they affect not only that particular person, but all of those connected to them. We see this regularly destroy and wreck families and extended families. And how many of us, we can look back on our parents and our grandparents, we can see all the wonderful things about them, but there are something about them that we also see and we, I don't, I don't want to imitate that. And yet, we find those elements still present within us. As one person has said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you know who said that? Ravi Zacharias. If only he had listened to himself. And you know who gets to define what sin is? It's not you, it's not me, it's not your family. It's not our country. God does. God defines what sin is. Sexual immorality, anger, violence, laziness, love of comfort, these are sins. You can find cultures anywhere in the world at any time. You can find cultures and, and countries that treasure these things above others. You can find people and groups in the past that prize and love violence and anger. Others that that treasure laziness, comfort. Our culture prizes and treasures sexual immorality. You know, it's, it's funny because in our world, in our culture, we are far, we have, we have flipped, flipped things on their head. It's not that we don't have rules in our culture and in our world. We have lots of rules. We we care far more about what we eat and about what we do with our bodies than we do who we sleep with. This is nobody's business. This is everybody's business. And I'm going to tell you how you should do it, what you should eat, how you should live, how you should work out. All of this matters supremely. This, that's, that's not your business. That's private. And it's not that it doesn't matter, but that we have flipped the world upside down. We don't get to define what sin is. 
We don't get to say this is right and this is wrong. We merely recognize what God himself has already declared. This helps us to see that the cost of sin far exceeds whatever it promises. This leads us to this last application. How is any of this a blessing? That is a good question, right? Let me bless you. Come, I've got a blessing for you. And then, Reuben, you're the firstborn. You're not going to be preeminent. Sorry, Simeon and Levi, you're going to be scattered. A bunch of scoundrels. Issachar, you're dropping down a notch. You're going to be enslaved. Well, what kind of blessings are these, right? These, are, these aren't blessings. These are anti-blessings. What's going on here? These don't seem like blessings at all, and yet they are blessings. And Jacob is finally confronting his sons. He has, throughout his life, he has failed to confront his sons when they sin. And now he is finally confronting them and saying, this is what will happen to you. This is where your sin leads. This is what it will cost you. More than that, it is a blessing on all of Israel that, that none of them are given, none of these four sons are given prominence. Who wants leaders of Israel who are known for immorality and being undisciplined? Can you imagine what a line of kings marked by that would produce in a nation? What about a line of kings that are marked by violence and anger? What about a line of kings who are marked by just laziness and love of comfort? It is a blessing on all of God's people. More than that, it is, it is a blessing because as he is showing where their sin will lead, he is displaying for us God's own discipline on his children. As we read earlier, God disciplines those whom he loves. We are meant to see the real world implications for our sin against God. And yet there is something else that we've got to notice. Certainly there are gener- generational consequences to our sin, but it almost sounds as if there is no hope. If you're born in the tribe of Reuben, what hope is there? If you're born a Simeonite or a Levite, or in the tribe of Issachar, what hope do you have? Are you condemned simply because you happen to be born in this tribe? What we see going forward is that our, the sin of these fathers, it does. Your sin is not your destiny, your failures are, are not your fate. You know, yes, it's true, no one of significance arises from Simeon or Reuben, but. The tribe of Levi, though they are using their violence and anger to destroy as sin against God, the city of Shechem in Genesis, yet in the book of Numbers, it is that aggression that they use and they submit it to God. And as a result of that, they are blessed and they are given given a special place. The Levites are are then accorded some honors as those who manage the household of God. Because they defended the name of God amongst the people of God with that same aggression. It is not that their aggression was in and of itself terrible, it's that it wasn't submitted to King Jesus before. And Issachar, 
Though it would be undone by its own laziness and love of comfort, yet we read in Judges 5.15 that they committed themselves alongside Deborah and Barak to go to war for the Ephraimites to deliver them from oppression. And in Judges 10, we are told that there is a man by the name of Tola who comes out of this tribe and he judges the people of Issachar delivering them from their own oppression, and he delivers them and judges, rescues, leads, guides for 23 years. But the greatest example of this turnaround is seen in Judah. Judah, verses 8 to 12. Judah, you remember at one time, he was the one who suggested and when the brothers saw Joseph coming from afar, it was, it was Judah who suggested to his brothers that they just kill him. Kill him, be done away with, let's get rid of him. And you remember that for years after Joseph has been sold into slavery, for years and years, Judah abandons the Lord, abandons his family, lives his own life according to his own desires, becomes known to be a man who just commits immorality with anyone he sees, ends up unknowingly having sexual relationship, a relationship with his daughter-in-law. Yet this is the one who was given preeminence in the family. Why? It is because this is the one, Judah is the one who turned and repented and clung to God, followed after the Lord. And he becomes an example in the following chapters. He becomes an example in the the years following that of one who follows the Lord in faith and is willing to lay himself down for his family, to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. And each of these pictures here that Judah is, is blessed with is loaded with significance. We are told away, told in verse 8 that he is going to have preeminence. You see this, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your father's children shall bow down before you. He's going to have preeminence. More than that, he's going to have prosperity. We see this in verses 11 to 12. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. All right, so the picture is there. He is putting his, uh, his animal, he's stringing up, he's tying his animal to a, an, an expensive uh, the choice vine would have been the place where you would have gotten the best grapes to make the best wine. It, would, it, was, it, was, it was something you wouldn't hook and tie your animal up to. Why? Because they would eat it. It would be like getting a dog and tying him to your favorite piece of furniture. You wouldn't do it. But, but Judah is so wealthy, I mean just so fabulously wealthy, that he feeds his donkey like, like, like he would himself. It would be like you feeding your dog, not, not regular dog food, but you make them a T-bone steak every time they're hungry. 
You're just so fabulously wealthy, you just can afford that. But more than that, we see him going on, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's called to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. One of the most expensive things in the ancient world would, be, would have been wine. And it, the picture isn't that he's actually washing his clothes in wine. That, that would be insane. That, that would stain rather than be a good you know, agent to clean. That's, that's not bleach. The picture is, he is so wealthy that the, that the most expensive drink they could have had in the ancient world, that's what he's washing his clothes in. I'd be like you washing your clothes in gasoline. You know, it's so expensive. It's also a bit smelly. It just, he's just, here is a man who is so wealthy He's pictured as having so much wealth that he does what is insane. He can afford to do it. It's meaningless. I'm going to wash my clothes in the most expensive liquid I have. And as a result of this prosperity, we see in verse 12, he's, he's incredibly healthy. His eyes are darker than wine. He's, they're dark. They're clear. They're not, here's not a man who's struggling with age or, or lack of health. And his teeth are, are whiter than milk. He's a picture of health. But more than everything, we see that he is blessed with dominion. Your hand, we read back in verse 8, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That is, he's going to rule and conquer. His, his tribe will rule and conquer. He is blessed with kingship. He is a lion. It is a symbol in the ancient world of strength, of royalty. And we see this going on. He is the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Do you hear what that is? It's not only will he have kingship, not only will he have dominion, he will have eternal kingship, eternal dominion. The scepter will not depart from from Judah, nor a lawgiver or a staff of rule from between his feet. And we're told this will not happen. This, the scepter, the rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And this is the most controversial passage or translation, uh, the most difficult uh, word to translate in the entire book of Genesis. There has been more conflict. Conflict is a harsh word. There's been more debate over this than almost anything else. What is, who is this Shiloh? It has been thought that perhaps it is a place. There is a place named Shiloh, and, and perhaps that's what he's talking about. Until Shiloh comes or until they, he comes to Shiloh, however it works. But that, there is some difficulty there. Lots of difficulties, actually. Some, Luther, Spurgeon, thought it might be a, a title. The son or the peace giver. It could be a proper name. That's how it's translated in the King James, the New King James, the, the New American Standard Bible. They all translate it as a, as a proper name until Shiloh comes. And it's difficult because there's no other text in Scripture that 
gives this name for Christ. And if it is a name or, or a proper name for Christ, and what is it conveying? It's unclear. Another reading we find in the English Standard Version is uh, until tribute comes to him, and that's perfectly possible. What seems to me the most likeliest reading is found in some translations, NIV, the NLT. It's just to him to whom it belongs. So it'll say, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until, to, until it comes to him to whom it belongs. The point is, is this. But the right to rule as king over God's people will not depart from Judah until he comes who has the right to rule ultimately and eternally. No matter what position scholars have taken on what the meaning of Shiloh is, all of them are agreed that this is, that this is a, a prophecy about Christ. That this is pointing the way forward to the Messiah. And what we see from this is that Judah is, is blessed. Not because of how great he was, but because of how he, he humbled himself before God. Stopped living for himself. And turned back and put his full hope and confidence in God. And back in Genesis chapter 3, we were given this this picture of the deliverer who was going to come and rescue God's people. He was the one who was going to crush the serpent's head, despite the fact that he was going to be bitten. That is, he was, going to re- he was himself going to be wounded, but he would crush the enemies of God, and in doing so, defeat death and Satan. And here, towards the end of Genesis, we are given another picture of this, image, of this deliverer. That is, he will come and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And that deliverer will be a king, an eternal king. And that deliverer is none other than Jesus Christ. The Savior, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5 calls him. And that Savior and King is Jesus who has come and is coming again. In his first coming, he, he doesn't just point the way of salvation and life. He is the way of salvation and life. It is him we cling to. In his first coming, he, he laid down his life so that all who put their hope in him, though we deserve the infinite, eternal justice of God to fall on us, like Judah. Yet, we are accepted. Yet, we are forgiven. Yet, we are received by God through faith in Christ. We deserve the judgment of God, but God and Jesus saves those who deserve his judgment. Because Christ died and rose again, he is exalted to the right hand of God and he will one day return. And when he returns, he will after that reign. Every eye will see him 
and he will reign. And then, finally, on his great white throne, he will judge the living and the dead. And there will be no place to hide. There will be no place to to conceal anything. He who knows us will see us. We often hear these days about people who are angry with God about one thing or another. I wonder if we have ever considered that God might be angry with us. Revelation 20 lays out this great white throne judgment. John tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. That is the the books of the recording of all that we are, all that we have done. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades and the grave gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This picture of this book of life, John in the book of Revelation discusses again and again and again. To trust in Christ, put on our faith in him. Our names, though, though, though the record of our wrongdoings is great, our guilt is massive, yet our names by faith in Christ are added into this book of life. And Judah becomes to us, comes to us as a picture, a sign pointing the way to Jesus. The rain will not depart from him. The right to rule will not depart from Judah until the one comes to whom it rightfully belongs. And that one has come And he is coming again. And we ourselves will all give an answer to him. Our lives will be be exposed. Our thoughts, our emotions, our words, written in anonymity on the internet, texted to one another, thought and muttered, our deeds... The Lord will see and he will judge it all. But for those who put their faith in Christ, Christ was judged in their place, our place. For those who have put their faith in Christ, we are invited, we are are condemned, we are not condemned away from God's presence, but rather we are invited to the table. Invited to have fellowship with God and with one another. Friend, if you have never trusted in Christ, I would urge you today to look to him. Christ has come to secure salvation for all who put their faith in him. And he will come again. 
to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our Lord, we are, we see ourselves in these men. We see our own lives, our own tendencies, our own propensities and their actions. Are we undisciplined? Yes. Tempted to immorality, tempted toward anger and violence and cruelty and meanness. Tempted to laziness. Oh God, we are in every way we fall short of your glory. We, we sin. And yet you have made a way for us in Christ. Father, I pray that even as Jacob pointed his sons to the deliverer who was yet to come, may we, O oh God, look to him, our deliverer, who has come and is coming again. We pray all this in his name. Amen.